Welcome to Miked Up with Chiral Podcast, where I'm your host, Brandis Field. And I'm your co-host, Tim Bertelsman. And you're tuning into the one and only evidence-based podcast made by chiropractors and for chiropractors. Here's how it works. We'll have a new clinical topic that we dive into each month, and you'll leave with practical skills that you can apply right away. Well, that's contingent on who's giving the advice, and you'll want to take mine. <laughs> Let's dive in. Welcome to the eighth episode of Miked Up with Chiral with Tim and Brandon. This is an exciting episode. This is one of those game changers that if you can recognize this diagnosis, you're going to significantly help a population that's looking for answers. Just a reminder, if you haven't done so already, make sure you hit the follow button and share this episode with a friend. It really does help us reach more and uh, generate uh, some excitement around this podcast and most importantly, profession. Now, Let's talk about my favorite quote in chiropractic. Uh, it's he who treats the site of pain is lost. And this is um, unfortunate that a lot of patients will come in and they want you to treat where they have pain. And many times that is where the problem is. However, what we see, in fact, the last blog was on dorsal scapular neuropathy where the problem is at one spot and unfortunately the symptoms are in another spot. So I thought it'd be fun to follow up with this blog, I'm sorry, this podcast, and talking about a diagnosis where the pain is at the site of the problem. Uh, and this is one that if unrecognized can create big problems. That if we can't diagnose this condition and we can't treat this condition, it turns into an ugly case of sciatica that no one has the answer to. So we're going to talk about ischiofemoral impingement. Dr. Burlesman, can you spell that? Um, no. <laughs> um, if I'm, we... I'm still trying to deal with the fact that this is the eighth time we've had to be in the same room together for an hour and, and listen to each other. So that's an accomplishment in itself. Most people don't know this, but Dr. Burles and I practiced together, and we started the first 10 years a two-by-four wall away from each other, meaning his treatment room was on the next side of my treatment room. And about maybe two to three months into working together, he sat me down, and I thought I had done something wrong. I was nervous. I'm like, oh, my gosh, the uh, the, the big guy at the clinic is, is having a conversation with me. He's like, do you never shut up? And I talk the entire time when I'm with patients. And I, I mean, I'm just, maybe it's nervous energy. I don't know. Um, <laughs> however, I constantly dig into people's lives. But um, it, these, these podcasts have been fun. And, and I always appreciate any time I have to talk with Dr. Burlesman and uh, spitball what we're going to do with our next patients. But let's get into issue of moral impingement because I want to take a deep dive into this condition because unfortunately, it's something that... Um, if unrecognized, like I said, um, creates a big issue for a patient. But uh, unfortunately, if the patient doesn't understand how this thing happens, then we have a, a problem because they continue to irritate and compress this nerve. And this is one of those that technically it is a muscular or soft tissue type diagnosis. Um, however, it's something that uh, can quickly lead into neuropathic pain. And remember, our neuropathic pain is when the nerve is the actual site of injury. And when we spend uh, the vast majority of our days sitting on our nerve, it can create that shooting or burning or electric-like sensation going down into the, the buttock and then also into the leg. So I want to talk about neurogenic pain, I'm sorry, neuropathic pain first before we dive into the actual blog because I really do like Dr. Burlesman's explanation 
of how these nerves get so irritated and that self-perpetuation of these neurologic symptoms. And he does a great way um, on how that nerve interacts or interfaces with the soft tissues around it. But first, let's talk about what happens within the nerve with any kind of compression or irritation is our nerves have nerves. And, and that's really interesting. We have that nervi nervorum that unfortunately, when you stretch it and you irritate it or compress it, um, those nerves within the nerves get irritated. Now also remember, similar to blood vessels, that we think of um, a compression as stretching, or if you have a, um, um, uh, a straw and you compress the straw, that's compression. But also think about it this way, is that if that straw blows up and it actually compresses and inflames from within in the inside, you can also get stretch of those same nerves. So we can get this internal compartment syndrome, unfortunately, that when that nerve compression or irritation happens, we start to get inflammation and edema and scar formation within the nerve, creating this cycle of inflammation along the outside part of the nerve or the perineurium that can cause this internal compartment syndrome leading to problems down the chain. So that's what happens within the nerve. Outside of the nerve, I think, is the most intriguing because it really has um, an impact on what we can do as providers. But I think that Dr. Bur well, I shouldn't say Dr. Burleson. I call it the Elmer's glue phenomena. Uh, can you go into what happens when you start to get chronic inflammation of a nerve to that nerve in the outside structures? Yeah, first, first I'm a little nervous. I've heard like two compliments in the start of this podcast, and I know that there's something coming. I we're, hit your car we're on the way in. <laughs> we're talking about a pain in the butt. This is just ripe for you to be throwing some uh, some jabs later. I didn't wear shin guards, cup, nothing, so I'm a little concerned. But regarding the uh, Elmer's glue phenomenon, we know that anytime a nerve becomes irritated, especially at the source, so if a nerve becomes irritated near the IVF, or in this case, the sciatic nerve is becoming irritated in the buttock, that the entire nerve is going to swell as a result of that. So anytime a nerve swells, there's increased hydrostatic pressure, and increased hydrostatic pressure means that fluid is going to weep out. Think of sanding your fingers in between two fingers. If you sand them, they're going to start to weep fluid because the pressure inside is greater than the pressure outside. And as that fluid comes out, it's going to stick to the things around it. Well, that's a problem for nerves. Nerves need to be able to stretch and glide in their canals. They're not those pieces of beef jerky that we're used to seeing in the anatomy lab. They're more like bungee cords that have to glide along their path. And think of a bungee cord that runs from you to 10 feet in front of you. If nothing's obstructing that bungee cord and you pull on it, the entire bungee is going to stretch a little bit at each segment. But now if you had somebody step on that bungee cord a foot away from where you're pulling it, now all of that stretch is going to happen in that first foot. The rest of that is not going to get much stretch, which is good for the rest of it, but not good for that first foot, which is getting a tensile stretch greater than its capacity, and that's going to cause ischemia, just like pulling on your skin makes it white. It's going to cause that, that tissue to lose blood supply, and it's going to be an issue for the nerve, especially if it's stretched for a prolonged period of time. Okay. I, I actually don't like the dad jokes we tell, but I do have actually a funny joke about something dying. What is the last thing that goes through a bug's mind after it hits a windshield? I uh, couldn't tell you. It's butt. <laughs> I see why you don't like them. If they were good, you might like them more. 
Speaking of good, what is happening in practice right now? What what are we expecting oh, in the next couple of months? Man, we're busy. Now, I know this the podcast comes out about a month after we record it, but <laughs> so we could be out of business by then. Well, true. <laughs> Things aren't very good. Uh, we're busy. Um, we're in the Midwest, so we do have weather swings. I, mean, I understand that not everyone is in a, a location that has big weather swings, but Monday, I'm sorry, Sunday in St. Louis, we had weather at 70. We had a busy day Monday. Everybody decided to get out and uh, clean their garage out and do yard work and pick up sticks. Uh, but also think about those things that other patients are doing. Uh, you've got your patients who are going to uh, wearing flip-flops now, or they're um, you know starting to go outside and bike. Um, so take those things in consideration with your your patients that you know, they're switching their roles or switching their hobbies or habits, what they're doing on the weekends. Um, and I think that's something that uh, can only help us in practice. Um, however, if you don't understand that there's been a change in their lifestyle, then maybe they don't know why they have any pain. Uh, dig a little bit deeper and find out, are they changing any as far as, far as like I said, shoe wear or activities to uh, to accompany that new present, newly presented pain? And I think that's one of the, the most interesting things about changes in weather is we all appreciate them, but in the Midwest, and go up and down. We can wear, we can go sledding on a Tuesday, um, and then we're wearing flip-flops on, on Thursday. Yeah, the, the time change alone lets patient break the, the 10% rule that patients often ask, you know, how did this happen? Why did it happen? And it's just because their activity level exceeded what they were prepared for, what they had trained for. And any runner knows that you can't go from the couch to go run a marathon and not expect something to fail, especially if you do it a couple of times in a row. But sometimes our weekend warriors forget that 10% rule that if they escalate their activity too quickly, now you have an extra hour of daylight, which, you know, when you take work out of the picture in the evenings, that means probably three times as much time to do things like clean out the garage or go play softball. And when the when your patients are breaking the 10% rule, something's going to fail. So always reminding our patients to don't break the 10% rule, meaning don't do more than 10% of what your body's used to last week. And if you follow that, there'll be a lot less chance of injury. We're way behind on our outline already. We're nine minutes in, and we're still at the random facts of the day. Random facts of the day, uh, this is a good one, uh, wear and tear, is that when we see the prevalence of labral tears in the hips, um, it's on average at 78.8% with people with hip dysplasia and 93.8% with people with FAI. And the reason I think this is important, it was just presented in uh, Orthopedics and um, uh, Surgery and Research a Journal uh, 2022, is that we have to consider that joint degeneration is a continuum. That even though you saw it on an x-ray, an MRI, or a CT, and there's an actual finding of hip dysplasia uh, or a labral tear, we have to think this has been going on for a long time. I need to stabilize this joint, prevent it from moving so much. And it doesn't matter if it's the elbow, uh, the little finger, or in this case, the hip. We need to make sure we have joints that are moving properly and properly centrated, prevent future degeneration. Yeah, what a great point. I know that I, as a chiropractor, am always looking for joints that need to move more and sometimes forget about those joints that need to move a little less for uh, things like you talked about. One uh, one instance of moving more though, uh, cervicogenic headaches, we know that manipulation is an incredible tool, that it's the primary tool to get our patients better. But a, a study in December said that snags or mulligan snags sustain natural apophyseal glides 
which is a really simple procedure just to get some mobility into those upper cervical segments. This study found that that technique worked better than spinal manipulation. So I'm certainly not going to give up spinal manipulation, but adding snags to that and adding the home snags if you go into Cairo up, you'll be able to see the uh, video that Dr. Steele created on how to perform a snag. Just go into the exercise library and you can prescribe that for your patients at home to help boost their outcomes. It's so interesting. That the reason this, this study's in here is because uh, so we want to say one thing is better than the other. There's a magic bullet to treat some kind of diagnosis. And you and I know that doesn't, that's not the case. So especially in your room, <laughs> well, we have bullets, but, um, I think the biggest thing with, um, all of these, uh, different kinds of treatment methods is that it's all about combining the right method for the right patient. The manipulation isn't the best for headaches. Now there are snags. Uh, now there's education. Now there's medication. It's sometimes a combination of things that you can design for your patient, to help get them out of their problem. Uh, we need to get off our high horse that one thing is better than the other and start combining things to have multimodal care and include the patient um, in whatever it is that you're doing. Um, I think that let's, let's dive in. I mean, let's get into issue for more than pain. That's the reason we're here today. And I think this is one of those things that uh, unfortunately I tend to see too late. Um, I start to see this once the pain is down the leg. Um, and I think that if you dig a little deeper, you'll realize that it started out with that deep gluteal pain that unfortunately nobody, nobody was able to recognize, or maybe they were trying to treat a mechanical problem with a chemical solution. And I think that in the next 35 minutes, I want to make sure that everyone here is able to um, have the essential skills to one, recognize it based on symptoms, two, do the right evaluations. There's two major ones. And then three, you know, let's manage this thing successfully. Uh, let's, let's do the right treatments, uh, the right exercises. So, uh, Tim, I'm going to let you start off. Uh, so what is issue for moral impingement? Give me the, the short and the long answer. Sure. It's uh, something that's often overlooked. In fact, you know, not only can I not spell it now, I think for my first 10 years of practice, I had no idea that it existed. And then once uh, once your eyes are open to that, then you start seeing it a little bit more. It's really just chronic buttock pain because the quadratus femoris is compressed. Remember that quadratus femoris is a flat rectangular muscle that goes between the ischial tuberosity and the uh, lesser trochanter of the femur. So it's a very small space. Typically that space is about two centimeters, but patients who have less than two centimeters uh, will have some compression of the tissue. So that tissue that's being compressed is the quadratus femoris muscle. So the muscle, you're going to get some myofascial irritation. You have the potential for tendinopathy. Remember, most tendinopathies are from chronic stretch or compression. They're not coming from um, you know, a, a chronic overuse. So that pinching of that quadratus femoris muscle makes it irritable and it causes swelling. And unfortunately, the neighbor to that muscle is the sciatic nerve, and that swelling spills onto the sciatic nerve, much the same way that a disc herniation swelling spills onto a nerve root. The same thing happens here in the buttock and causes a pseudosciatica for pain radiating down the leg from that inflammation. Yeah, and one of the things that if you really look at netter and anatomy, you'll realize that a lot of those short muscles are stabilizing muscles. And the reason we know that is because you're taking that muscle, muscle with a very, 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 very short tendon to that bone. And what that means is that tendon is elastic. It's meant to store and return energy. So these muscles don't really store and return energy. They are stabilizing high torque muscles and their torque is assisting in that hip abductor strength. Um, and what unfortunately with those hip external rotators, what we know is they prevent internal rotation. 
and you've heard Tim and I talk about this before with hip abductor weakness, but uh, unfortunately, when you don't have really good strength in your hips, your glutes, your glute max, glute med, then things pay the price. Um, and this is one of those muscles that's going to pay the price. That this is a fixable, you know, contributor to hip abductor strength. Uh, it does in a little bit different way, but however, we can have deep uh, uh, reasons for this uh, this muscle getting irritated. It can be congenital. Just like anything else, I, I, unfortunately, there's not much you're going to do about that. Um, it can be acquired uh, due to activities and uh, postures and sports uh, that, that can cause that irritation of the quadratus femoris, or it can just be functional and positional. And this is <laughs> this is where most of your patients live. Uh, they um, are pharmaceutical reps, and they sit on their butt literally the entire day. Um, you want to wonder how to compress a nerve? Sit on it. Uh, you'll figure it out real fast. Um, and this leads to a, a bigger problem that unfortunately, if my job was to drive for eight hours a day and I have a nerve compressive problem in my, my, my butt, um, I need to take that away. So uh, check out the, the sitting posture uh, infographic within Cairo. It's going to go through some different ways that can help with that. Uh, one way is if your seat can uh, sit upright, uh, which is great, not leaning back, uh, then also have the, the pan of the seat angle upward, which will take some stress uh, off this area. Uh, also, there are uh, many cars that have an extender um, for your seat, and you can increase the surface area of your hips and your thighs on the, uh, the seat and take some pressure off that. So let's go into who gets issue of femoral impingement. Uh, the, I know the short answer, anyone with a hip and a pelvis, but especially females. Uh, who, what population of patients uh, do you see most often uh, suffer from this diagnosis? You know, this is one of those things that you can almost uh, grab if you have a skeleton. Uh, uh, don't or, grab someone's uh, issue. Of <laughs> if you have a model of that, uh, you can see where the how the femur just comes out of the acetabulum and how close that is to the ischium. So what you have to say is who would be pinching those two bones together? And we know that uh, females who may have a slightly wider pelvis is going to approximate those two tissues. So females are much more predisposed to this. Um, most of the problems that cause this are something that is bilateral, like a hip abductor weakness or um, being female, which means it occurs bilaterally in a lot of cases, up to 40% of cases is a bilateral problem. But the people who are going to be predisposed to it are those who approximate those on a regular basis, and that's especially forced terminal hip extension. So this would be long stride runners or race walkers who take long strides where you're just bringing that femur back and abutting it up against the ischial tuberosity, rowers, ballet dancers, anybody who's taking their leg into extension on a repeated basis is uh, certainly a candidate who's, who's going to suffer from it. And a lot of times it's because of that overuse. It's not necessarily an injury that caused it. It could be traumatic. It could be somebody who had some uncontrolled eccentric contraction of the quadratus. So this is usually when they need to stop external rotation or stop abduction, uh, abduction of their thigh. Those uh, types of movements will tend to provoke it, but usually it's somebody who just puts their thigh into extension repeatedly. So symptoms, you know, this is, I always enjoy doing two things when a patient comes in. First, based on their name, I like to guess their age. I know that sounds weird. However, it keeps things fun in practice. Smith? <laughs> but no, based on the, based on the first name, oh. you can kind of tell how old they are. 
Like if it was like Tim, you're looking at between 70 and 80. If you, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but the second thing is I like to guess their diagnosis. You know, someone comes in with a, uh, a pattern, um, essentially, of uh, symptoms. And our, our goal is to find out what's wrong with them. It starts with that initial conversation. We use a chief complaint survey that uh, uses an algorithm to help uh, delineate what's wrong with the person, where it is, what kind of quality or timing. Um, and then also give them the right kind of um, functional capacity evaluation. Uh, to, uh, to to look at where their their problem is, but this is one that I think that you guys have all heard, and maybe just didn't associate that pattern with this diagnosis. Because people with issue femoral impingement, it often begins mild and moderate discomfort in the buttock, and gradually gets progressive. Uh, it's not just in the lower buttock; it can also radiate into the anterior groin and medial thigh, but fairly local. It's not shooting down the leg. It can mimic a hamstring tendon pain, uh, more at the proximal um, insertion. Or origin of the hamstring, not at the insertion, and not shooting down. However, if undiagnosed and if untreated, now if that muscle gets uh, enough inflammation, enough irritation, you can get sciatic radicular complaints uh, because of the proximity of the sciatic nerve. And then, of course, just like we've talked about, you will have increased pain with uh, weight bearing um, or sitting. And the reason I say weight bearing is because a lot of people will stand with, on one leg or kind of hang on one hip, which can also be a contributor to issue of femoral impingement. Um, I can't think of any other ones. Can you think of any other symptoms? Yeah, symptom-wise, it'd probably be somebody who doesn't like to compress that. So we know that if they're going into terminal hip extension with a long stride, that compresses it. So a lot of times they'll have a, a short, choppy stride on that side. And certainly, as you talked about, people who sit in a vehicle for a long period of time will potentially have a seat that they've adjusted. But a lot of times they do something even simpler, and that's take some weight off of that butt. And they, they shift it forward or shift it to the opposite side. So when you see your patient not wanting to put pressure on that side and taking short choppy gates, that would be a, another clue that maybe their deep gluteal pain is coming from the quadratus femoris. I think it's really funny that the number one orthopedic test is the number one symptom that I forgot. So thank you for bringing that up. Uh, but I guess now's a good time to go through the orthopedic test. Uh, before we go through those tests, uh, there's two main ones uh, that we'll go through in detail. And, but before that, let's hear from our sponsor and uh, stick around and you'll hear about the two best orthopedic tests for issue of femoral impingement. Can't get enough of the information you hear on our podcast? You will absolutely love our platform. ChiroUp helps thousands of chiropractors across the globe simplify the way they practice using our online evidence-based software. It's your one-stop shop for powerful clinical research, simplified patient education, and smart practice resources. Visit ChiroUp.com, try it out for free. And if you'd like to subscribe, use referral code PODCAST15 for 15% percent off 12 monthly billing cycles. No contract required. Offer valid on new subscriptions only. All right, we're back. It, let's go through the best tests for issue of femoral impingement. Uh, the short answer is there's two. Uh, the long stride walking test, I'm going to let Dr. Burlesman go through that. And then I'll go through the issue of femoral impingement test. Uh, both take about 30 seconds um, c combined to go through. So uh, we have a very simple way of assessing through their symptoms and orthopedic testing to come up with this diagnosis. Um, and then we'll go over how to treat it. So Dr. B, what is the long stride walking test? 
Yeah, it's the test that that uh, basically provokes the symptoms that when we have that patient take a long stride. So we're going to have them just overstride and walk down the hall with big long strides. If they don't like to do that, if they have pain when that leg goes into extension, that's a problem. The other thing that we can do is poke on it. Remember, almost every orthopedic evaluation does one of three things, compress it, stretch it, or make it work. So you don't need to remember all the fancy names. Just remember, how would you compress it? How would you stretch it? How would you make it work? And in this case, with with a, a compressive type problem, we're going to focus on compressing it. So stick your thumb into it and say, does that hurt? Remember, that's right between the ischial tuberosity and the lesser trochanter of the femur. It's a pretty small space, but if you dig down in there and the patient says, ouch, that hurts. Now we can, we can enhance that by moving that patient's hip into extension and adduction. So basically helping them compress that space a little bit with those two movements and then, then putting some pressure on it. If that makes it even worse, we can be certain that there's at least irritation in the area. You're stealing my test. What's your test? <laughs> the issue of a moral infringement test is exactly that. So just like Dr. Burlesman said, that uh, really the, the main uh, purpose of orthopedic testing is the compressed thing. So the issue of a moral impingement test is to do exactly what you just said. Someone just put a name on it. Uh, but you'll have the patient sideline uh, with the affected side up. You're going to bring the leg. Uh, the leg will be long, so the knee extended. And you're just going to bring the leg back into extension, so for some hip extension. And then you're going to let it drop towards the floor. So you're going to add in hip adduction. And if you add in some extension and adduction, it's going to compress that tissue. Uh, high sensitivity, 82%. Specificity, 85%. Uh, so it's a good test. Um, so if you're looking for reproduction symptoms, uh, those are the main two tests that we're going to use. And then really it's about how do we treat these things? And the short answer is, is manual therapy. And I think that in the absence of any kind of uh, progressive pathology, red flags, uh, this is something that we can really make a dent in really fast. The research is really good on this diagnosis. And if you want to look at it uh, in more depth, look in the condition reference section in Cairo Up. Just search issue of femoral impingement. It's going to give you everything that we just gave you, plus the next hour uh, of education on this specific diagnosis. Everything from how to the videos on how to assess it, um, the uh, etiology, uh, the imaging considerations. We have two DAC bars that help us go through all the condition references, and then all the exercises. But uh, if you want to, you want to get in there and uh, do some myofascial release and stretching. There's some great exercises, our soft tissue manipulations in Cairo up on the quadratus femoris the piriformis, the hamstrings, and also the gluteal muscles. Um, however, most of us have, are familiar with that. The one thing I do want to highlight in the treatment of things you can do in your office are going to be your sciatic nerve releases and nerve flossing. Uh, I know, Tim, this is something that, that you do on all your patients. So as far as that goes, you know, what are you doing with your patients? How are you getting into that area and flossing that tissue? Um, teaching them how to floss it primarily that I can do it in an yeah. office, but I'd, I'd rather them do it at home because they can treat themselves multiple times per day. And remember that a nerve tension test is stretching both ends of the nerve. It's the straight leg raise or the slump test. A nerve floss, we don't necessarily want to stretch both ends. We want to stretch one end and release the other. So when it comes to the sciatic nerve, the way that we would stretch the top end of that is having the patient move their head into flexion, stretch 
stretching the top part of the cord. The way we'd stretch the bottom of it is by doing a, a straight leg raise, basically. So if we have that patient on their side, we're just going to alternate those two. Stretch the top and loosen the bottom by flexing your head with your, your leg back, and then take your leg forward towards your head as you put your head into extension. And swapping those two as though the way I teach it to patients is imagine that you've kicked yourself in the head. So when your leg comes up, your head goes back and then look down to see who kicked you. So when your head goes into flexion, look at your leg that's gone back into extension. They can do that sitting. They can do that sideline. They can do it in, in lots of positions, but it doesn't matter. We're just trying to get that nerve flossed back and forth to break up those little micro glue adhesions that have developed along the course of the swollen nerve allow greater flexibility and better neurodynamics. So that's what I would give my patients at home as, as well as the exercises that you've talked about. Um, I had a DO in the office yesterday and a DO obviously has um, been trained in manipulation. He asked that to me though. I was treating something in the shoulder. I was like, why did you manipulate my, my thoracic spine? And I said, I don't know, I just, I just enjoy doing it. Uh, he didn't think that was that funny. Um, <laughs> however, uh, one thing you said is manipulate any of the joint restrictions. And I think that's more important than, than we all take, give it credit. That we want to be great at diagnosing uh, muscular problems, nerve issues, joint problems. However, we also have to remember that our body is great at sharing load. Meaning it's going to find a way to do whatever it is you need to do. If you have a broken leg and a tiger is chasing you, you will run, you'll find a way. Uh, but the same happens that in the case of my my, uh, my patient is that if he has hyperkyphosis in the thoracic spine and can't get scapular retraction, he's gonna overuse the rotator cuff. He's gonna have, in his case, a partial thickness tear of the supraspinatus. That that's the diagnosis, but I can't put my blinders on and look a little bit deeper, uh, which will sometimes result in uh, in finding joint restrictions. So um, I don't just manipulate everybody to manipulate everybody. There is a reason for it, and uh, fortunately, um, as, as chiropractors, we can find those simply and fix them even faster. Well, that's a great point because in, in this one, that compensation that's taking place when the patient can't take their leg back, they're going to load the facets, and we know that patients with ischiofemoral impingement have 30% higher facets loads on the affected side. So no doubt that that same thing's going to happen to the facet. It's going to become irritated and inflamed and swollen and sticky and stuck. So those patients are, are certainly going to benefit from manipulation. We also can't forget that JMMT said that more than 70% of hip pain comes from an asymptomatic lumbar spine. So from either regard, regardless of which direction it's going, that patient's probably going to benefit from, by getting better mobility in their lumbar segments. One thing that I uh, was just talking about this weekend is that my job mostly in the office is to get things loose. And if I can do a, a good enough job in the office of getting someone's, someone loose for whatever their diagnosis may be, the patient's job is to keep it loose. Um, and if we can get it loose and the patient can keep it loose, then we just have to give tissue time to heal. So our treatment plan is not a business decision. It's a clinical decision. If you have a broken leg, it's six weeks. I don't really care who you are. It's four to six weeks. It doesn't matter. It's, it's a bone. It takes that long to heal. If you have a nerve problem, it could be even longer, six to eight weeks. If it's truly just a muscle problem, two days, maybe up to five days. Uh, a tendon problem, two to six weeks. So we know how long this is going to take based on the tissue that was injured. Uh, and the most important part of this is that we have to make our patients um, uh, an active participant in their care. 
because they need to know why they're coming back in to see you. That if someone leaves your office and they feel 10% better, however, they don't know what they're supposed to do and they don't know what exercise and how long it's going to take. That's the reason they didn't come back and see us. So if we can make them an active participant in their care and they know what's expected of me, they know what's expected of them, then now they understand what the, where their condition is going and how long it's going to take to go away. The biggest piece of that, though, is the at-home piece. So as far as exercises uh, in the Cairo protocol, we really focus on hip abductor strengthening because this is a likely comorbidity that unfortunately with incompetent hip abductors and that uncontrolled adduction of the knee is causing this problem. Um, so something that we want to attack. Now, whenever we go through rehab, people want to know what are the best exercises. And we'll give those to you in Cairo Up. So I'm not, uh, I'm not going to, to cheat you out of that. However, it really is a progressive loading program. We go from more of a stretch to more of a strengthen to more of a weighted to more of an eccentric to more of a dynamic type activity. And where the patient starts, um, it's kind of puts you into that um, that, that path of getting them out of pain. So we have to make sure that we um, progressively load them. If they have a nerve symptom, that's always going to trump where you are. So we can't progressively load a nerve. It's not possible. So what we'll do is we'll do the nerve flossing and nerve tensioning, and then we'll go into the progressive loading. So the things that I'm going to use are the clam, uh, the clam with a band, um, I'll do an advanced clam exercise. I can do a posterior lunge. I can do a side plank, a side plank with abduction. These are all the, 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 the library of things that I can do. Um, however, personally, for me, I'm just going to do some clam, then I'm going to add some resistance. That's probably all I'm going to need uh, for, for these patients. Now, I can also, like Dr. Burroughs said, is to get into the lumbar spine, is that chances are there's some um, a migration of forces going up the chain or possibly some things going back down the chain. So core strengthening exercises are going to be beneficial. Um, I'm going to start someone off quickly with some dead bug, bird dog, side bridge, or curl up exercises. Uh, I do like the side bridge exercise. I think that it does accomplish a lot of stuff both in the hip and the core um, uh, uh, purposes. Uh, as far as the amount of hip abductor strength, that really does require a lot. But keep in mind, you may need to start someone off from their knees doing the side bridge as opposed to going directly from their feet. So in closing this, this, this podcast, we've only got a couple minutes left, but I think that one of the biggest um, mimickers of these gluteal pain problems um, is uh, gluteal tendinopathy. And gluteal tendinopathy is by far the most common issue that we're going to see in the hip and location, 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 that if you have it really deep um, in that um, ischiofemoral space, I'm thinking ischiofemoral impingement. If it's more on the outside part of the hip, now and more towards a greater trochanter, I'm thinking gluteal tendinopathy. But there was a great article that, that Tim just brought up, uh, I think it was last year, on gluteal tendinopathy. Can you go through that one with yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And what it said is really consistent with what we know about gluteal tendinopathy, that we used to call this hip bursitis, which is really a trash can diagnosis because 99% of patients who have pain on the outside of their hip don't have an itis, they have an apathy that we call gluteal tendinopathy rotator cuff tears of the hip. It happens with the same mechanism, chronic compression, which causes degeneration of the tissue, turns it into beef jerky until it fails. 
Same thing's happening at the greater trochanter, and it's the gluteus medius tendon. So a lot of these patients have coexistent problems. Remember that gluteus medius weakness allows uncontrolled adduction of the thigh. When the thigh comes together, it pinches that ischiofemoral space. But it also stretches the gluteus medius tendon, and that chronic stretch causes degeneration. So we know that the source of that pain on the outside of the hip is coming from degenerated tissue. When we thought it was inflammation, we'd do things to try to suppress inflammation. So we'd use ice and ultrasound and steroid injections. But now that we recognize it's almost always degenerative, we're using things to stimulate a controlled inflammatory reaction. In this study uh, that came out in December, and this was Journal of Physical Therapy, said that exercise and education works much better for pain and quality of life as compared to corticosteroid injections. So not surprising that's the case. Don't forget that that hip abductor weakness is probably central to both of these problems. By teaching that patient how to have strong hip abductors with things like a clam and an advanced clam and squeezes, the things that you just talked about, we're going to help both of those problems. Awesome. Uh, I want to bring up two new things in uh, Cairo Up. Uh, the first is for you directional preference people uh, that we just include. I don't know why it's taken this long, um, but supine cervical distraction. That's when the, the patient is uh, benefiting from attraction and extension. However, we can't really do that from the uh, weight-bearing position, and they're more in the supine position getting uh, centralization of symptoms. So we added that in, having the head off the bed um, or couch or whatever they're using. Uh, I use that all the time. Just never had it incorporated in Cairo, but it is now. Uh, so that's exciting. The other one um, is ret looping. Um, I really enjoy using this. I actually only use this for uh, my knee patients. I don't know why. Um, I know this was, uh, was David Poulter. I think... Isn't it his name spelled back? Yeah, it is his name spelled backwards. <laughs> I just remember that too from school. Uh, so David Poulter, uh, that's why it's called the rut loop. Um, but anyway, uh, so knee extension, my patients who had, you know, post-surgical issues and hamstring hypertonicity, but I'm also finding it beneficial for my, my sciatica patients, my patients with uh, neurogenic claudication or any kind of degeneration of lower back. Um, this is a great way to regain flexibility without stretching. Um, it really does a great job. Essentially, the patient's long seated next to a wall. Their feet are, are up against the wall. They're, they're, they're on a couch or a floor, and they can prop themselves up further and further, putting more and more dural tension. And then as soon as they're at the point where they have a lot of dural tension and they feel that stretch going down their hamstring, whether that's the hamstring or their sciatic nerve or some other soft tissue, I don't know if I know or anyone else knows. However, what we do know is that if you repetitively flex and extend the head, uh, I think it's 30 times, and then rotate the head back and forth 30 times, they can now get more range of motion. So for your patients that aren't responding to getting better terminal knee extension, uh, have just chronically tight hamstrings. I know my son playing soccer, he's used this for the longest time. Uh, it just helps gain some flexibility. Uh, two great exercises just incorporated in Cairo Up. Awesome. You can check those out or any of the skills that we talked about today, any of the exercises, the nerve flossing, or a deep dive into ischiofemoral impingement or gluteal tendinopathy. Those are all available in Cairo Up. You can go to the Clinical Skills tab to see hundreds of tutorials. And also, if you haven't already done so, make sure you follow up the Miked Up with Cairo Up podcast uh, wherever you're listening. Leave us a review. We love to hear your input. We love to hear your reviews as to what we can do to make this uh, better. And we'd love to hear what was your greatest takeaway from this episode today. We thank you for listening. We know your time's important. We'll try to fill it with quality information, which means less time for Brandon speaking next time. 
we'll work on that and we look forward to connecting next month. Thank you guys. Hey, thanks for listening. To access more information, visit ChiroUp.com. You can sign up for a 14-day trial. Use referral code PODCAST15 for a special discount after your trial. Offer valid on new subscriptions only.